Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers, where we have all of the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. If you're a fan of the show and want to join the conversation, you can subscribe to the Free Your Inner Guru Patreon page. Your subscription includes access to our discourse community, live monthly Zooms, and some pretty cool merchandise. Your Patreon subscription helps keep the show going free of ads and supports me as an independent researcher and creator, for which I am very grateful. I'd love it if you would take a moment to go to patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru and subscribe to support the show. Welcome to episode 97 of Free Your Inner Guru, a conversation with photographer and self-described armchair philosopher, Sean Tucker. I know you're going to love this episode. It touches on all the topic categories of this podcast, from creativity and spirituality to finding and using your voice, and even getting out of a high-control organization. You see, before Sean became a photographer, he was a Baptist priest. He's going to share that story and many more in the conversation you're about to hear. But before we dive in, I want to respond to the feedback from my guest appearance on A Little Bit Culty with Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames and their reciprocal appearance here on Free Your Inner Guru. First of all, it was an amazing experience. I'm so happy with that episode as a, a piece of content that I would share freely with people who want to know more about my story through an empathetic lens, which comes from speaking with other survivors of similar dynamics and what a thing that was to discover this year, how powerful that can be. The other thing is, welcome to all the new listeners. If you have found free your inner guru through a little bit culty, you are most welcome here. I hope you'll stick around and dig into the backlog. I think if I, off the top of my head, anything from episode 80 forward has been this journey of me waking up to the cult dynamics in my own experience. The response to that journey step by step is that it's resonating with people and uh, I'm figuring things out here as I go, as so many of us are, that it's resonating. Sometimes it just feels like a bonus. And a great big thank you to Jay, Lori, and Aaron, the newest Patreon supporters, and to Maverick357 and Elins22 for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to feature the review written by Elins22, and I'll share the other one next episode. So Elins22 wrote, As soon as I want to start making Laura my guru after hearing her on A Little Bit Culty, I go to her website where she explains what free or inner guru is. It means I am my own innate wisdom giver, because I am a human and worthy of my own thoughts. Very grateful for this podcast and for not feeling so alone. I could say that over and over again. I am a human and worthy of my own thoughts. That really captures the lessons of so many of our experiences. So thank you for highlighting that. And the other thing I want to touch on here is not feeling so alone. That touches my heart because not feeling so alone has been a major theme for me and experience for me in 2021, thanks to being able to connect with so many people who care about the same things I do. And this runs the full gamut from art and photography and creativity to breaking free of coercive control to becoming more self-aware to creating beauty through art and other forms of self-expression. So if you have positive feedback about the show, there's so many ways you can support and help it grow. Share it with your friends, write a review, become a patron or a one-time supporter via the website. It all keeps 
me being able to do the thing that I love, which is to create nuanced conversations with people who have accumulated wisdom through their lived experience. And speaking of wisdom through lived experience, it is time to introduce our guest. Sean Tucker is a photographer, filmmaker, and writer based in the UK. He seeks to inspire fellow creatives through his popular YouTube channel and has written his first book, The Meaning in the Making, in which he shares his philosophy for the creative life. Reflecting on this conversation with Sean, I got a real sense of what it's like to bring all parts of yourself to your work, as evidenced in his philosophical approach to photography. This is what I find most interesting about him, and it's a journey that we're all on. As we evolve, our work evolves, and what we bring to our work evolves. Before Sean became a photographer, he studied theology and worked as a Baptist priest in South Africa. You're going to hear about his journey into and out of the priesthood, then into photography, and why he started his YouTube channel, what he thinks about social media, and now he's written his recent book, The Meaning in the Making, where he demystifies the creative process by sharing his stories. I love being able to bring you this conversation as we close out 2021. Photography and creativity have played a significant role in my life, providing me peace during challenging times, and that was before the pandemic. Sean wants us to put our voice out into the world, imbue it with more meaning to tell a better story and give a deeper truth. This is an intense yet hopeful conversation, one that I hope takes you into next year with a renewed creative focus of your own. I give you the meaning in the making, a conversation with Sean Tucker. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Sean. I'm happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Before we jump in to your marvelous new book, The Meaning and the Making, by the time someone has press play on this episode, they're going to wonder whether or not we're related because we share the last name. <laughs> and uh, a few episodes <laughs> back, I had my sister-in-law on who also shares our last name and she's an author. So I'd love to just share a little bit about how I connected with you over the internet because we did not know each other and we are not related. So I found Sean while following a YouTube channel that I use for my new camera earlier this year. After 20 years of shooting Canon, I changed over to Fuji. The channel that I've been relying on for support, his name is Chris. The channel is called Pal2Tech. And he had you on as a guest. Mm -hmm. I hit play on that and yeah. was struck immediately by what a fabulous guest you'd be here. Because you and all of your experience really cross a lot of the categories here. Spirituality, creativity what it means to be visible in the world and do that with solid ethics and, and values. And, and you address all of it in the book. I was thrilled to realize that as I was reading it. It's just flagged here and there and everywhere. So I love that. Yeah, it must be so gratifying. I hope to have that feeling myself one day. <laughs> but So before we dive into the big topics, I would love it if you would share a little bit about your backstory. The the big moves are basically, I was born in the UK and we moved out to Zimbabwe, actually, when I was six months old. That was my mom, my dad and I. And about four years later, I was probably about four years old. My dad left for another woman and my mom, my six month old brother and I came back to the UK and we lived here for about three years, but my mom really missed Africa. It's one of those 
places. I think for a lot of people, when you live in Africa, it gets its hooks into you and nowhere else feels like home. So that was the case for her. And she took us mm -hmm. over to Botswana then, where she met the local Barclays bank manager and fell in love and they had a kid. And then we started following him around. So he's where I get my name Tucker from. And yeah, we followed him around, bouncing around from place to place because you do in these expat managerial roles, you do three or four years in a post. So we went back to the UK for a little bit, then it was Lesotho and then Swaziland. And then I started going to high school in South Africa. And then that's where eventually I started going to, well, initially I went to study psychology, sociology at university and did that degree because I was already involved with the church at the time on the side, but my family, this is the thing. I think a lot of people, when they go into church, they do it because their family takes them to church. For me, it was just the opposite. My family were all atheists and thought it was really strange. And I think my mom was quite worried that I'd been brainwashed and was hoping I'd get over it. And then I, yeah, eventually after that degree, cause they wouldn't help me get a, a theology degree. Cause she said, that's not a real degree. It's not a real job. Go get a real degree. And then we, you can do what you want after that. So after I did that degree, I took myself off to seminary for four years in Johannesburg. And then was, I worked for probably seven churches all in all. I was ordained and then worked for a couple of churches in Cape town as well. But yeah, I think I knew pretty much when I started with the church that it, it wasn't going to last because a lot of the ideas that they had and the way that they did things and the things that they valued and institutional structures were things I couldn't really get on board with. So I, I put my head down for a few years knowing I could do some good because I worked mostly with 35 year olds and under. So a lot of kind of 20 something in teenage ministry, and then uh, did a lot of poverty outreach stuff and that stuff I loved. I just couldn't do the structural stuff. And eventually was fired. I was fired a couple of times because I wasn't really willing to toe the line. And when that kind of all fell apart and I just decided I was still getting offers from churches to go work for them and less conservative churches, so it might've worked, but I was just done with having to only tell half of the truth. It's not that I stopped believing a lot of that stuff. It's just that, that I guess I knew too much now, um, because I'd also read a lot outside the church as well. And you're not allowed to synthesize. It's, it's either or when you're in the church. And because I was bringing in new ideas and talking about things and challenging the institution, it was never gonna, it was never gonna work. So I called it a day. I think I'd just turned 30 then. And that's when a friend said to me, you have to start a new career from scratch now. So seeing as you're starting at the bottom of a ladder, you better make sure it's up against the right wall. And that's when I thought well, I've been doing video works, especially, but a little bit of photography too. I thought, I wonder if I could make that a career. So that was probably about 12, 13 years ago now was when I started trying to make a, a full-time go of photography. When did you yeah. start your YouTube channel? How did that figure in and, and why did you start it up? That was probably, probably about five years ago now properly. So the, actually the first videos I posted were at the beginning of 2015 and it was at the time I'd gone through that stage after the church, obviously I, I really struggled to make money. I mean, like everyone does. So most of my money came from waiting tables for a good three years and getting little freelance jobs and then slowly started to pick up uh, full-time jobs. I got a, a full-time job as a food and product photographer for a company in Cape town that ended. And then I just realized like there wasn't much opportunity in South Africa and I need to make a plan. So that's when I came back to the UK and I got more product photography jobs and started working in house and I thought to myself that there was a big part of leaving the church that I left behind because I was terrified of public speaking as a kid and even into teenage years. And I had to teach myself in order to work for the church, I had to teach myself how to actually talk to people. And I eventually got quite good at it and I really enjoyed it. 
But when I left the church, I didn't have a context for that anymore. So it was a skill that I worked really hard on and something I really enjoyed doing. And I started to think, I wonder if there's a way that I could get some of that back. Is there a format I could bring some of that back? So I, I thought about a YouTube channel. The first three videos I did in that January 2015 were how to shoot big products in a studio. They're still on my channel because um, when I'd gone around trying to look for that information when I started out, it just wasn't really there. There was like lots of tabletop product photography stuff, but nothing at scale. So I thought, well, I've got this skill set now, which I've developed from doing this job. So I did this three-part series and those videos got passed around a bit and they did quite well because they filled a, a bit of a knowledge gap. But I just didn't really connect with them. I thought this is really dry tutorial stuff. It's not really what I want to do. So I did what everyone does at the start of a YouTube channel is you put up a bunch of videos, you get quickly disillusioned, you abandon the whole thing. <laughs> so I did that and walked away. And then it was still, it's got to be almost a year and a half later, I reckon, middle of 2016, when I went to Snowdonia, which is a beautiful part of the UK, it's in Wales, and very mountainous region. And I'd been getting just completely burnt out on the photography I was doing at work. It was just so technical. You have to shoot through 50 sofas in a day, all from exactly the same seven angles. The lighting has to be consistent. They all have to be cut out, put onto white on a background with a drop shadow, recoloring the material 20, 30 times for all the different skew options. Like it's very technical. There's not a lot of creativity in it. And I started to not light my camera. So I, I thought maybe what I should do is take myself off to somewhere and do something I'm not good at with this thing to remind myself how much fun it was to learn to do something new creatively. So I thought, well, I'm not very good at landscape photography, so let me give that a shot. So that's when I went to Snowdonia and I thought, I wonder if I could make a little video while I'm there, just sharing that, that idea of being burnt out and trying something brand new. And I cobbled something together and I wasn't even sure I was going to post it, honestly. But I taught myself into putting it up and I, I was a little insecure about it because the photography was terrible. I'm not a landscape photographer. I was completely out of my depth, but the story in it was good. And it felt like the way I used to talk in church. It felt vulnerable. It felt like, here's my story. Here's the things I struggle with. This is how I found a way to get beyond it. And I know that connects with people. And, and it, when they're struggling in similar ways, it gives them a path out. So that video went out and then people really connected to that and in a different way and in a way that felt like what I really wanted to do. So since middle of 2016, I've been posting. I only promise one video a month. Often I put up two, but I've just slowly plugged away since then. So it's probably, yeah, just over five years now in earnest. You mentioned that in the book, you released it. You didn't want to sit around and check and see what was happening with it. So you went to the movies. What was your concern at that point? Yeah. We just all have those fears, don't we? I mean, the, the one is definitely that it gets ignored because that feels bad. If people ignore what you've done and you care about it. I think I was more afraid in my case of criticism and making a fool of myself because I had said, you know, this is a, a professional photographer's YouTube channel, technically speaking. And yet I'm deliberately diving into a genre of photography that I have no control or understanding over trying something brand new. So that's a vulnerable thing to do. I mean, imagine whatever your job is, imagine picking a part of your job that is, everyone knows is, is a way you could go, but trying that and doing it in public, knowing that you're going to fall on your face, that could affect how people see you as a professional, whatever it is that you do. That's what I was doing in front of everybody. But I also knew that, and, and those comments did come in as well, like, oh, this is, 
this is not good photography. This is terrible, which, you know, if you're going to share something with the internet, you're going to get a lot of that. There's no way you're not. And you have to brace yourself for that stuff. And I think I'd already had an idea. If I'm going to make a proper go of this, I'm going to have to get good at dealing with those comments that come in and that backlash from people who just want to act like they know mm -hmm. better or to put you down or who are just threatened by the fact that you have a bit more courage to put stuff out there. And so rather than risk themselves, they'd, they'd much rather just shoot down what you're doing or belittle it. You've got to weather that stuff. So that's, that's where the fear came in. So yeah, I went to watch a film because I thought if I sit here, I'm going to be tempted to watch these comments come in. So let me go and do something else for a few hours and then come back and just see what's happened and then close it down again, not sit and obsess over it just to get a sweep of it. And it's actually a practice I still do today. Now, when I post a video up, I walk away. I don't go and read the comments. I'll wait at least a day before I even go and dip my toe in. And then I'll have a scan. I, I don't read everything. If I can feel that something is overly negative, unless it needs addressing because it's a misunderstanding, I, I just gloss over it, block or move on or hide the comment because I just don't have the time for the negativity. Anyone who's ever shared anything online or thinks they want to, I mean, you, it's something you have to face. Yeah. I'm identifying with what you're saying because I live a public life and my story is very public and it always, it's, it, it used to be more polarizing than it was, but a lot of people don't really understand it. And so it's always, there's just, like you said, there's always vulnerability to it, especially now where there's a lot of people trying to figure out what they're going to do that might be different than prior to the pandemic. It, getting into new territory or realizing that in order to have like for me, it's the podcast is my number one going public concern. First of all, I want to know your discipline and sticking to once a month because the pressure is on as a content creator, the pressure is on to deliver once a week in the podcasting world. And mm. for me, for the last four years has been, I can do the most I can do to the level of quality that I want. I don't have a staff. I do everything myself. It's, it's twice a month maybe yeah. with the occasional short commentary on something. So that that's also like bringing some discipline to your craft that sounds intentional. Yeah, I started out with this idea that because I'd seen a lot of YouTube channels who when I started was the height of the that wave of daily vloggers, the kind of the Casey Neistat era, where mm -hmm. they were churning out a video a day. And I knew a lot of the people who were in that sort of space were doing sometimes two a week. And I just knew that I, I don't have, especially with the kind of video that I wanted to do, where I, where I thoughtfully wrote about something first and made sure it was worth saying before I just flicked on a camera and rambled. I don't have eight brilliant things to say in a month. I just don't. I don't have that much good stuff to say. But I think I could manage saying one thing a month that's worth you taking some time out of your day to listen to. So I thought rather do less and do it well then do a lot because of some expectation that you hear that you're supposed to follow or some rule you're supposed to adhere to if you want your channel to grow. And then I think a lot of people on social media do, which is, which is trying to just spam out a ton of content to hopefully pull people in. And yet the content is spread so wafer thin. I think people start to see through it and go, this is, there's not a substance to this. So playing the long game and going, I want, I want in 10 years time, if I'm still doing this, to be able to post a video and for most people to go, it's worth watching it when he puts something out mm. because he, he always does something new and fresh. And I'd rather do that and have a smaller, more engaged core audience than have some huge inflated subscriber number who have worked out that you're actually 
you don't have a lot to say and most of your stuff is filler. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was that sort of discipline. I thought, well, just, just promise what you know you can do. And if you do more, then it's a bonus. Then people are happy, but only promise what you're sure you can do. In the church, I used to speak two or three times a month from the front of the church. So I could definitely pull something together once a month. I can definitely do that. And I thought, just rather under-promise and over-deliver. You mentioned that you write before you make your video, and now you've written a book. You started writing a couple of years ago. And the way that you've titled each, I'm going to call them sections rather than chapters, but the way that you've titled mm. each section and put them together, and you start off with order and, and you work all the way down into meaning and beyond. So I'd love to hear from you just from a, a bird's eye view, what your intention is for the reader and what you were crafting, because there's a lot there. Yeah, I'd sketched this book out probably two or three years ago now. And I, I, I had been doing this on my channel. There's, there are different playlists you can watch on my channel. So there are tutorial playlists with like portraits, or you can watch stuff on street photography, or you can see stuff on editing. But then there's a philosophical playlist, which is me usually sitting on a sofa talking about something like, how do you handle creative jealousy or get over creative block or inspired or motivated? And that hopefully applies to outside of photography. In fact, a lot of people who message or email who say, I'm not a photographer at all, but I, I, anything you put on that playlist, I watch because it means something to me as well. So I thought, well, this channel, the, the YouTube channel itself has always been a little bit of a Trojan horse for me in that. I love photography and I'm passionate about it, but I think it's no surprise to anyone who watches regularly that actually the channel's not about photography. It's about life. It's about how we get a handle on who we are, and where we find purpose. I've hit topics in videos that, um, recently I did one on Jung's idea of the two halves of life and how that relates to our creative journeys. I did one earlier in the year after going through a pretty rough patch on how do we deal with liminal space, like I'm hitting topics that have absolutely zero to do with f-stops and shutter speeds. And, and I think that's the stuff that really interests me because I think that's the stuff that, that actually has the potential to change somebody. And it absolutely will affect your photography. But I, I don't care about teaching you because there are a thousand, a million tutorials out there that will give you the basics. I don't need to do that again, but this mm -hmm. stuff might make you a more self-aware person and help you be more deliberate about what you take photographs of. So I mix in as much of the practical tutorial stuff as this kind of deeper life stuff. And I thought, wonder if I could put together a book that follows a flow where we actually start to ask ourselves those deeper questions and then point that deeper stuff at the things we make, whether you're a dancer or a painter or a poet or a writer or a photographer, it doesn't matter what it is that you could get a better handle on yourself, some self-awareness, work out what you've been through, what you're, and then work out how you refresh and stay inspired and then put your voice out into the world and then deal with what comes back at you. And then how you keep imbuing what you're doing with more meaning in terms of what you've really seen in life, not just surface, like I want to impress people or I want people to think I'm brilliant at X, Y, or Z, but how can you tell a better story or give a deeper truth about something you've experienced. Because personally, I think the best art in any form that I've experienced has always been stuff that's vulnerably offered and that's true to you. So that's what I hope people get out of it. As the book unfolds, you're going to realize that I'm not really giving you really practical stuff. It's really not the point of the book. In fact, when I started writing it, 
the publisher and I had a chat because the publisher, they do a lot more sort of practical books. So this was a bit of a departure for them. And they were kind of like, well, maybe you, maybe you could put out sort of, you know, lists of activities or assignments. People, I'm like, it's really not that sort of book. You know, it's just, this is exactly what I want to do. And I want, I want this to be read by people who have to be a bit more patient because it's not going to give you, you're not going to get a quick list of do's and don'ts. This is going to be, you're going to have to be patient with it. You're going to have to listen to my story and start thinking about your story mm -hmm. and working out over, over a series of chapters, you're probably going to come out having faced yourself a little bit, hopefully, and that then you're going to have a better idea about how to stick more of yourself into what you make. And that I think is going to mean you're going to make more meaningful things. As I was taking in your stories and, and the message as the, the, it was a walk down a memory trail for me because how I first got into photography in the early 2000s was first via a camera club. And I was drawn to the outdoor landscape photography. And at the camera clubs, they would always talk about this photographer and his name was in gold leaf. He was referred to so reverentially. His name is Freeman Patterson. He's in his 80s now and he's a photographer out of Eastern Canada in New Brunswick. I'm not sure you would be familiar with him at all because it's a different genre within photography. But mm. he as well was in the seminary and he left. Mm -hmm. And what he has done for the last 40 odd years is put on creative workshops to teach the art of seeing. Mm. And you're told, show up knowing how to use your camera because the camera is not the thing. Mm. You are the thing and how you see the world is the thing. Yeah. And it was lovely to have that brought home in a different voice, in a different way of storytelling. But it also reminded me of how much photography is such an amazing metaphor for life. And you capture some of that. I've, I want to get into some of it with you, but like just even the, the use of light and the shadows. And I'd love to get you to talk a little bit about it, the importance of embracing the shadows of the work, but also yourself. And as I think it, you say, protect the highlights. That came about because I was trying to get into street photography and I realized like it's not really suited to my personality, the very traditional form of street photography, which is more reportage going out and trying to capture people in public spaces is not really, I, I don't like the conflict. So I decided to try a different way of doing it and instead shoot light and shadow interacting in spaces and just having people move through and often being small and anonymous in the frame just to give a sense of scale. So photographers who've done similar things would be photographers like Fan Ho and Ray Metzger and some of Trent Park's work where they're really playing with light, shadow and space. And because it was just a natural way to photograph that made me feel more comfortable within my more introverted personality. I started to think about how does this work? Because how am I doing this? Like what makes it work? You, first, any sort of photography where you latch onto a good idea, the first few times it happens by accident. You're going, well, what did I do there? How can I replicate that? And then you start to work out, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm metering in a particular way in terms of how I'm exposing. So I always shoot manual. And I'm making sure that the highlights are protected first. So I'm never blowing out the highlights. They're never too bright. But because any camera has a limited dynamic range, it can't see like a human eye can see. It can't see every, which is why 
anytime you look at a sunset, it looks stunning and you take a photograph and it looks crap because you can't, you, you haven't got that much dynamic range on most cameras. You have to choose. So what I do is I choose to protect the highlights first, but that means I'm darkening down my exposure to keep those highlights protected from blowing out. And what that does is any shadows that appear in the photograph go very dark, almost to black. So you create a lot of negative space and shapes, which I really like. And it's, I mean, it's not a new idea. It's something that cinema does. Like that's what cinematographers do is you'll see in cinema, they don't make the mistakes we often make with our cameras. They're not taking a photograph of a scene with people in it and the sky behind the subject is blown to white. They've always got every detail in the clouds because they protect the highlights first and let the shadows fall dark. And if they want to fill those shadows, they'll bring lights onto set, but the highlights first. So the more I started thinking about that and doing a bit of teaching around the technical side of that, I also thought it makes a nice life philosophy too, because protecting your highlights is something I need to remind myself of. I'm somebody like, I think a lot of us, in fact, in fact it's, it's based psychology. We all have a negativity bias. We all are looking for the negative, but we're not paying attention and celebrating the positive often, which evolutionarily has served as well, because you've got hunter gatherers running around who needed to be hyper aware that they were being stalked through the bushes by some carnivore. They needed to be aware of the negative, but they weren't as quick. That could quickly override any positive they had. We just found this bush full of berries. Oh no, there's a tiger stalking us. That is going to override the fact that we're celebrating this bush. That's why we do that. So human beings are very quick to identify. So I think it was the ecologist from the States, Rick Hansen, who coined this kind of Velcro Teflon idea where he says, negative thoughts will attach to our psyche like Velcro, but positive thoughts slide off like Teflon. So what you have to do is you have to be conscious of those positive thoughts when they hit your brain and hold them for 20 seconds to give them the same chance to imprint as a negative thought automatically has. So this protect your highlights idea became more than just a way to expose a photograph. It was something I thought, well, there's a lovely parallel to how I think it's healthier to think, protect those highlights when they pop up in your life, hold them, keep them in your mind. And then obviously the converse of that was, it's going to throw your shadows into a very, very dark space, which also I started to talk about protect your highlights, and then you're going to have to embrace your shadows. And if you hold those two together, I think it makes for good pictures and the embrace your shadow side unlocked for me, reading some of Jung's work and this idea of integrating your shadow because I think we all, he, he talked about it in terms of on the surface, we're all putting out this persona, which is the best parts of our personality. It's what we want the rest of the world to believe is the whole picture, but we know is rubbish because we've all got a darker side. We've all got dark elements to us. So we push out this persona and we try and hide our shadow from the world and keep it to ourselves. Those things that we're not proud of or unhappy with. And I know I'm somebody who is a perfectionist and wants to be seen as good. Like it's part of my personality. I want the world to think I'm a good person. But he had this phrase he used, which said in terms of integrating your shadow, he said, I'd rather be whole than good. And that was a real challenge to someone like me, as in, I need to make friends with the darker parts of myself and I need to roll it in to the whole, in which case I have to deal with the fact that I can internally be quite an angry person about things. I don't do that outside. I'm not destructive with it, but I need to face that that is in me and it is a part of me and stop pretending to the world that I'm some saintly figure who floats around. It's not true. I, I've got darkness as well that if I don't face it, 
that's probably when it does become dark and destructive. So embracing the shadows and then embracing the shadows we walk through as well, because we all hit patches of our life, which are really difficult. In the last year and a half, how many of us have had really, really tough, dark patches? And instead of going, well, that's terrible. I just want to drink myself into a stupor or, or distract myself by watching a ton of TV and sitting under the covers or just pretending this stuff isn't happening. Can I live through those shadows and be present to them, like face them? And that will always be painful, always. How much can I not avoid what I'm going through and be present to it and feel it, allow myself to feel it? In healthy ways, don't reach your threshold. Make sure you're getting help where you need it and reaching out where you need help. There's a quote that I tracked on the whole chapter about shadows. And I also want to bring it back to how that impacts our creative work and the making that we do as mm. photographers, writers, people who are expressing in the world through any art form or any um, form of work that they care about. It's all making. So I pulled this out. The shadow is the part of ourselves that we are ashamed of or fearful of admitting exists in us. It contains our basest impulses and darkest thought, which we try to hide from the world for fear of what they will say. And then you follow that up with a story from when you were told back in either the seminary or while you were working as a pastor that you weren't Christ-like enough. <laughs> Now, yeah. as someone who grew up in the Catholic school system in Toronto, Canada, I'm pretty sure that I heard that once or twice myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, what, what a thing to say, <clears throat> but it, it floats around. And you had a response to that that was different than the one I had, which was probably to cower in shingy more, <clears throat> just to run out back at the school and smoke a cigarette. I don't remember, but I, we've heard these things. What did that mean to you? And how did you stand up to that? It's, it's no secret. Like if you've been through that particular institution, the church in any form, depending on which denomination you join, a lot of them are obsessed with controlling your behavior and getting you to do the things they think are good. Sometimes it just comes down to trying to bring back Edwardian morality. I literally had in churches I worked in early on in Baptist churches, you can't play cards, you can't go to dances, you can't drink, obviously. I didn't have a drink until I was 26 of alcohol because I felt so guilty about the fact that I would do that and I would suddenly be a sinner. So I, I came through this very puritanical behave yourself properly. I suddenly feel like I woke up in my mid twenties and, and tried to find a lot of what they were talking about, even in scripture, even by their own rules. And it wasn't really in there. And I, I knew that I don't want this to sound like hedonism because it's not. It's not that it's just like, well, just anything's permissible and do what you want and be a destructive force. Because I still think morally for myself, I don't want to do any harm to anybody else or to myself. That's not okay. Or to the planet at large. For me, that's my, that's my morality. But outside of that, I don't understand everything else that they were up to and sort of bullying people with. And at a point, like I started to read scripture and really read the words on the page and, and see what they were saying. So when they particularly, I mean, I think the comment you're talking about would come because I would stand up on a Sunday and I would, especially towards the end, was quite critical of the institution and particularly how we treated poor people in our community and was told to stop doing that. And that I was starting to sound arrogant, like I knew better than the church. 
And I also that I'm particularly quite angry because they could tell I was frustrated about this stuff and it came across. I mean, I was never like a yell from the pulpit person, but they could tell that I was frustrated about this and Christ wouldn't do that because, because Christ, you know, would, would be more circumspect about things. You should be more Christ-like. And I knew too much at this point. So I said, I don't know what Bible you're reading. You've literally got passages where he's walking into the temple of his day, fashioning a whip. And then he's, he's whipping people out of the temple. So I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And the choicest words he had, which might as well have been the swear words of his day, he had some pointed stuff to say to the religious leaders of his day, which is you and me. We're, we're the religious leaders. We're the pastors. He had the worst stuff. You tell me to be more Christ-like. I'm not there yet, but I promise I'll work on it. And you don't really know what you're asking because you've got this glossy picture of him as this kind of beautific smile, lamb hugging guy in paintings. And I don't think that's the real flesh and blood human being who seemed to be quite revolutionary and actually pretty pissed off a lot of the time. So yeah, in fact, when he was most gentle was when he was around people who admitted their mistakes and who were open about their faults and their shadow side and the rest of it. So everything flipped on its head. And that's why I couldn't really be part of an institution anymore. One of the reasons I couldn't be part of an institution anymore that seemed to just bully people to behave the way they believed. And, and then of course, all the people who were doing the bullying, it would come out in a few months that they were having extramarital affairs or anything else because no one's perfect. And this kind of like puritanical, I mean, honestly, I think it's so um, prevalent now, not just in the church, in our culture, the way that we're holding people to account for things that they said, you know, 15 years ago on a social media platform, pretending none of us make mistakes, I think is starting to get that very puritanical perfect edge that I'm very uncomfortable with personally because I know where that goes having come out of the church. I think there's no grace for each other. There's no forgiveness for each other because there's no admission that we all do things or at least think things that aren't great some of the time. This kind of like cast the first stone if you've never done anything wrong mentality. We, we haven't really got that. And so I think a lot of healing will come and a lot, of, a lot more patience will come as people with each other when we start to admit our own faults, we'll have a lot more grace for others as well. I went on a massive rant there. That but is I a rant. It all. <laughs> I mean it all. I, I believe I asked the question. As I was listening to you, I'm thinking there's a lot of people using their voice these days. Almost everyone has the ability with a camera, a microphone, and two thumbs on, mm -hmm. on their, their phone nothing feels private anymore. That's one of the things that, that mm. I'm grappled with in the swell of voices that are speaking to some very important issues in a similar way. If you take the structure and the system of the church to compare to your experience, there's a lot of criticism of other systems. Mm -hmm. It seems one at a time. My particular system that the general public hasn't really looked at it yet, but I hope the day will come. It is the, the self-help industry and looking at yeah. the systems and, and the behavior and the abusive nature of, of those relationships. I think it highlights that abusive relationship between the entrenched mm. system and story versus applying things practically out in the world. And when it comes down to some of the most vulnerable people, not taking care of them is endemic to society. This has turned very social justice or social awareness, but you did say you're open to it all and here we are. Yeah.
how do you or do you, I mean, it's not everyone's responsibility all the time to take on the issues, but in the work that you do now, obviously you're very passionate uh, about this. You've written the book. How does that sit and how do you negotiate or move between the photographer and the voice and saying things that people care about? In terms of the photography, I almost see it a little bit separate at the moment. I've never really pointed the camera at an issue. And that's something I'm just in the early, early stages of doing now for the first time in, in a 10 year career. And I'm excited about that, but it's super early days. But I think when it comes to the films I make, it's slightly different in that I am trying to be more deliberate about what I say. It's more communication. I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to make art in videos, although it'd be nice if they, some of them were artistic and had flair to them, but it's more about the content and about communication because I'm trying to reclaim that idea of talking to people so that they have a think about their lives and think, how could I do this better? Or what am I struggling with right now? And this guy seems to be struggling with the same and he's talking to me and he tried this and that worked. Those, those kind of very basic, it is self-help, I guess, if you think about it. But again, it conjures up all the negative sides of that, that industry that can come up. But it's just, I think about it more like good philosophy. We think about philosophers and it's a word that kind of gets thrown around and a lot of people don't like it because it just sounds a bit elitist, like ivory tower thinking, and it must be super complicated, but it wasn't, that's not where it came from. I mean, Socrates was put to death for corrupting the youth of Athens. So he was talking to kids. He wasn't talking to, to fancy, clever adults. He was talking to kids. That, those are the people who understood what he was saying. And it was about asking yourself the right questions. How do I how do I get to know my, myself better and life better and do this, make more of this time that I have? And I like how useful that can be for people. And, and I, I get emails and I get, you know, messages from people saying, wow, this, this thing that you said or did on a particular video really, really helped. I mean, I've had quite a few emails from people going, I was going to take my own life, but something you said stopped me. I mean, if one person sends an email like that, I'm at maximum. That's, that's me. That was, a, that was worth doing. So a few of those and you're like, wow, this, this really does help. You know, I'm not, I'm not for everybody. I mean, I, a lot of people think I sound like a pretentious twat and that's fine. It's not going to connect with everybody, but for the few it does. And those people who do enjoy it and do get something out of it, I'll do it as long as they're there because that feels like a good way to spend a life. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask and you're welcome to say none of your business, but you, what are you starting to point your camera at? Are you ready to share? Uh, I, I can, um, let me see what I can give you. So I've moved to a different part of the country at the moment. So I'm up in Yorkshire, which is a far more rural area. And there are particular aspects of rural life around this part of the country that are dying out and disappearing. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to go around and take images with people who keep these old ways of life going and about what it means to them or what they feel they're losing in the process as well. Because this is stuff that's close to people in this area, but this is a much older generation and there's no one coming up behind them. So a lot of this stuff in 40 years might have gone completely. And there are a lot of things changing. So I'm trying to give a voice to people who are losing what they feel are important parts of their culture. And like I say, very early days, I, I haven't taken a single photograph. I, I've been working on it for three months and all it's been is meeting people for tea and talking about things and trying to learn and get to know the right people. And, and that's it. So very, very early days. And once I start taking photographs, it's going to be a good couple of years, I'm sure, before I've got something that I could show the world. 
that's, that's what I'm working on. Well, maybe people heard it here first, which is lovely. So this loops back a little bit because this all came out of talking to the shadow side. How does embracing the shadow translate into being more effective in your craft, either your craft of speaking or your craft of shooting? I think we could all extrapolate that painters paint, dancers dance. There's a creative process here that you're illuminating. Mm. There's a temptation when we make something. The way I talk about it in the book is I talk about language and how we use language. We have a choice in every sentence we utter, whether we want to say something that we know will make whoever we're talking to like us more, or we can say something that's true and risk that they don't like us or think badly of us. And we have the same choice to make with our art as well. So we can make things because we want people to like us. So we hit the crowd pleaser stuff. We put out the stuff that we know is the algorithms on the internet. This is, this is crowd pleasing work. Or we could say things that we know are true that might have some darkness mixed into it as well. That's complicated. That's a lot more nuanced. That gives us a view of life that's maybe not as palatable in some ways or not as popular in some ways, but it's, it's truer because we try to be honest with it first. And I think that's how when we start to face the shadows in ourselves and work out how to put a whole person out there, not just a persona, and we do that with the things that we make, not just in our interactions, I think our work gets richer for it. Gosh, I mean, I think some of the, some of the most profound art we know is that complicated art. You know, it's I, the examples I use in the book are Edward Munch's The Scream. There's a painting everybody knows. Why? Because he's He's telling you about his struggles with anxiety. That's not easy stuff. That's difficult stuff. When Rembrandt painted portraits, he stuck in the flaws and all. He accentuated wrinkles and aged skin. That's not stuff anyone wants on a painting. He put it in there. And I think it's deeper work and it survives because of it. I mean, Salgado's photography. He, he went around the world photographing workers in horrific conditions, refugees who were struggling to find a home and being displaced all over the place. And the, the damage that's being done to our natural world, that's the stuff he turned his camera on. That's dark, difficult stuff. It's not crowd pleaser stuff, but he found a way to face his own shadows and then our collective shadow and put it in front of us and go, I think this is what we should be paying attention to. And I always think that anyone who starts out in any art form, will start playing in the persona. That's where we'll begin. We'll show people the crowd pleaser stuff because we want people to think we're good at what we do. But at some point we have to make a decision along our journey, and it'll probably coincide with where we start to face our own shadows, to start to sew that into what we do and let that come out. And at that point, you will probably lose a bunch of that following you built if you were only persona all the time. They'll be confused and they're not sure what you do, but it's probably okay because you'll have work that will last longer and mean more to the people who care rather than just kind of that surface level attention because you please the crowd. So I think that's the challenge for all of us is to try and find that way to put art out there that shows the whole human experience, not just the highlights. In that case, the audience that remains is the passionate one. It's the ones that are really showing up for the work and will be grateful about the work and share the work. So it engenders a different kind of growth and spread as good art wants to do. And that's the danger of social media, isn't it? Because we get caught up in numbers thinking that means something. I mean, I've got almost half a million subscribers on YouTube, but only about 10% of those watch videos regularly anymore, which means most of those people watched a video once, hit subscribe, went away and forgot about you. So if I'm chasing that big number, 
90% of it isn't even real. There's no one there. It's, no, it's not a real thing. So instead, it's focusing on the small core you're building always. Ignore the big number. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's totally irrelevant. What's that core you're building? What's the quality of that core audience you're building around the things that you make? And what do you mean to them and their lives? And how happy can you be with how little? That's the other thing is we, we all want to chase X amount. When I get to that number, I'll be happy. I promise you, you won't. I promise you won't because you'll realize it's not real. Most of the time, there's not real people there. It's Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans article. It's, that's all you need is that small thousand true fans, that core of people that you mean something to. You can live off those people if they support you, if you give them a structure to support you. And could you be happy as an artist with just that if you built that for yourself? Ignore the imaginary social media number. It's mist, it's vapor, it's not real. Oh, I'm so glad you had Kevin Kelly's name handy to pull. I was exposed to that work by Seth Godin. So Seth's name mm. comes first and, and yeah. it is such a powerful thing. It's also a bit of a relief to know that a, a thousand people who care about your work may be enough and the work that, and it may be the same in the art or the photography world and may just having recently left coaching. What happens is the measure of success becomes fame, not necessarily impact, or mm. the mm. strategy becomes fame and not necessarily quality. So, mm. and, and I have to admit to having been exposed to a lot of the content generation games and mm -hmm. learning the hard way that that was not the, the marketing model for the type of business that I wanted to build. Yeah. yeah. There's, a lot, there's a lot of formula out there. And there's cottage industries around every form and shape of, of that as well that have spun off in order to have, you say, coaches, coaching, coaches, coaching, coaches. And I'm sure it's the same in terms of you know, photographers, coaching with photographers, coaching photographers, but at least there's, there's work, there's, there's, there's images and, and it's not a product, but it's something of substance beyond, um, conversation about art or how to make money off of art. Yeah. So, so yeah, obviously I agree with you when it comes to the influence of the internet, but I'm hopeful based on some of the things that I'm seeing online, people that I'm interacting with and have been drawn recently to the to the more recent work here is that there is a groundswell that is saying give me authentic and give mm. me simple business models and that business actually never really changed it was what we layered on top of it i want to mm. pivot now towards people who are listening thinking this is this is all very well and good i want to be able to express through my craft and make something you talk about Breath and voice. I really thought a lot about the sequence that you had set up there between logos, breath, and voice. These are three of those chapter section titles. So could you take us through what logos means and how that relates to breath and then finding your voice as a creative? The idea of logos is one that um, came up in seminary for us, is this idea in Genesis 1, you have nothing and then you have god however you perceive that to speak speak a word and then everything pops into being now we get very literal ideas about some see-through bearded floaty guy in the sky who just booms out a word but the idea is a lot more nuanced than that it's not literal it's not meant to be taken literally it's this idea that we we speak truth 
and we create by speaking out truth. We speak something that's real. And I, I think that when we make things, we participate in that. So if I can find it within myself to, to say the truest thing I know how to say, that I make out of that space, it, it, it reverberates. People receive that and they go, yeah, that is true. I, I relate to that because, and sometimes it's like, I mean, one of the points of feedback I get from the book is, yeah, I, I, I knew all this stuff, but I just didn't know I knew it. I love that because we all have this shared collective knowledge and we just need someone to say a piece of it for us to go, yes, that, that's how it is. When we say that, that sparks somebody else and goes, yeah, now I'm, now I'm inspired to go and make something on that. And these ripples go outwards. So I have this idea of finding a way to say something that's capital T true, that's true for all of us, that's true no matter our age or gender or culture or anything. It's a human experience thing. This is how we experience life and reality. Then it's a case of the kind of breathe in and voice out. And the way I talk about it in the, in the book is that if one of the biggest sort of frustrations people have is like, well, I don't really know what to say, or I don't know what my creative voice sounds like within this medium. I'm not sure what to do, but that's because they're trying to sing out before they breathe in. And I had this experience going through my teenage years of joining a song and drama group for a year after school. And I, I used to have this real insecurity about my voice cracking on stage, which it did quite often then. It was quite embarrassing. I told the singing coach at the time, like, this happens. I, I, I'm really kind of nervous about it. And he said, don't worry about it. We'll work with you. The problem is that you're not breathing in properly. You're not supporting the note with enough breath when you actually sing out. You need that full column of air to support the note properly and make it strong so it sustains. So we used to have these breathing blocks where you sort of stick them against your diaphragm, just underneath your sternum, then lean against the wall and breathe in. And when you breathe in, your diaphragm expands outward. So you push yourself away from the wall as you breathe in. And, and I was suddenly conscious of this muscle and how important it was to take in that strong column of air. Because I grew up with asthma as well. So breathing was always a weird thing for me. I was worried I would be short of breath. And I used to have to do like long distance running and athletics and would always kind of Am I going to get to the end of this because I might run out of breath? And so the minute I realized that, it changed how I sang. I, I could sing. It still cracked every now and again, but a lot less because I was supporting every note I sang out with that column of air. So the way I talk about it in the book is saying, we can't start with what does our creative voice sounds like. We have to start with breathing in. And this idea of even the word inspiration is linked to words like respiration, which is about breath. It's about inspiration. It's about breathing in. And this idea of almost a divine in-breath is the way, that's, that's the kind of root of it, where it comes from, this being breathed into. So whether you think that's, you know, the muses in the Greek pantheon, or it's an actual human flesh and blood person who, when you hang around them, you feel inspired, or whether you have a more um, traditional kind of monotheistic idea of being breathed into by the divine, whatever it is, it's looking for ways that we can take in something before we try and push something out. And so I give suggestions in the book, like taking space, like we fill every waking hour with a screen or, or some kind of stimuli. We've always got a phone in front of us or a TV in front of us or a computer screen that there isn't a lot of empty mental generative space where we can actually get ideas. And I think the reason we get our best ideas in the shower is because it's when our subconscious mind gets to take over for five minutes because we switched off our conscious mind. We were just enjoying the sensation of warm water in a shower and our subconscious mind went to work and then we suddenly have ideas. So it's how do we get more deliberate about doing that? And for me, it's things like 
taking long walks without without an agenda, without trying to go out to get an idea because I need inspiration, just to let my mind wander, just to create space. And that's often when ideas will spark and doing that regularly. So I don't catch myself going because I need something, just going to be, and then things will spark. Some people use more deliberate sort of meditation. Um, I take a couple of retreats um, a year, trying to just go away for a couple of days to go, I don't have an agenda for this. I just want to go and journal a bit and spend time and listen to music and drive around and see what I see, but not have to do anything. And I find I often come back with, with 20 ideas from those. So it's, being deliberate about doing those things and then taking in other people's art as a way to breathe in as well and be inspired because I think inspiration is infectious. So when we some, see something that really connects with us as did, it might be in a completely different genre. Like I'm, I'm inspired by paintings in my photography or films in my writing. It doesn't have to be the same thing, but just constantly inhaling that stuff I think is really inspiring. And then you're at the point where you can start to take your specific story and journey and the things you've learned you can breathe out through through that stuff as if that's your vocal cords and that's your voice but you have to breathe in properly first and then push it through who you are and then your voice comes out of that but you can't put the cart before the horse because it'll come out as thin and reedy if you don't support it with that column of air i want to contrast what you've just said with perfectionism because for a lot of people, the hesitation before sharing what they've made comes in in terms of it's not ready yet or perfect. Do you see these as two different things? And how do you feel about sharing what you're making as you know that you're in this process of regenerating and forming your voice? I, I could talk as a perfectionist because I, I definitely struggle with it. And I think perfectionism is all about fear and control. So it's I'm scared to show the world anything if I can't guarantee it's going to be brilliant and everyone's going to love it. That's where perfectionism comes from. It's all fear. I've heard people say to me, I wish I was a perfectionist because they think like it's just some super finely like tuned internal quality. quality control. Exactly. That means everything comes out and it's brilliant, but it's not. It's a debilitating fear. Yeah, no, it's still shit. It's just now people are able to see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe exactly. somebody and will you... like it and make their day. Yeah. And if you go visit a perfectionist where they make things, you'll find a ton of brilliant stuff scattered around the room that will never see the light of day because they don't believe in themselves or that stuff enough, or they can't guarantee everyone's going to think it's brilliant. And so they kill it or hide it. And so I think you have to get to the stage where you're brave enough to show people stuff, even if you think like this might create mixed reactions or this isn't my best work, but it has the chance of doing something good for somebody. So I, I do things deliberately, like I post an image to Instagram every single day. And I don't do that because they're all good, because I don't know any photographers who can post a brilliant image to Instagram every day. I don't have that kind of hit rate. I don't know anyone else who does. Almost to kind of remind myself that this is about sharing. This is about mm. vulnerability. This is about showing my process as much as the finished product. So yes, I might release a monograph book in, in three years that I go, this is the final product. But I'm also going to show you the process every single day. And yes, I get mean comments all the time from people, but it's okay because I'm choosing to go against my own um, personality, I suppose, that wants to only show you the brilliant stuff and just to take in the compliments and show you more than that. I'm, I'm going to give you things that might split the room and might leave me with some unkind comments to feel because I think I need to be that brave because if I don't learn how to be that brave, I might kill good stuff down the road because I didn't think it was perfect. 
but it might have made the most difference. Mm -hmm. It might have made more difference than that thing I thought was perfect. And I have to train myself into releasing the things I make into the world, even if I can't control the results. When you're on that daily share, when you know it's less than optimal, do you ever write about it and share it or you just share it and see what happens? A bit of both. Sometimes I'll say, this is just an idea. It's not brilliant. And sometimes I'll just put it out. And often I'm wrong as well about the reaction. Sometimes I put something up like, ah, oh, this is a crowd please. This is brilliant. And everyone's like, well, we don't care. And sometimes you put something out that's like, literally a, a note to remember something that's really not even an image and people go i love this so you can't even really predict it or control it anyway that's what a perfectionist needs to learn whatever you think you're controlling or you think is brilliant you, you can never guarantee how it's going to be taken so i've just taken the mentality that just share more what's the worst that's going to happen what's the very worst someone's going to go oh i don't get this or a few people are going to go i don't like this that's okay i'm not sure i like it either but there's something about it that's interesting. So I thought I'd show you and just play with it that lightly. Yeah. It, and I think that, that could be key too, is it's playing with it lightly and not taking it all so seriously. And mm. it reminds me, uh, this goes way back, but it's interesting timing. When I started into it, just as digital cameras were coming out, did all the workshops, just kind of followed what was becoming my bliss to go out to a Freeman Patterson workshop with my film camera and my Fuji Velvia. I think by that point I had my first digital, but the workshop was all film and they would take the rolls to be processed overnight and bring them back. And the first thing in the morning, you'd be sorting through the slides and it, it would literally be like this. Like you have these little slides on loops on the light board going, crap, crap. And this, mm -hmm. this would be me, this crap, 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 trying to pick what I was going to present to the room. And my friend went into the garbage can, literally took a bunch of my slides, put them down on her light table. I was like, you might want to keep this one mm -hmm. and you might want to keep this one. And it was all because they weren't what my, not just what my eye saw, it wasn't, it, it was sunrise. To go back to what you were talking about earlier today, the shadows were very prominent. And mm. really for what it was, it was a perfectly exposed sunrise but it wasn't what my eyes saw. So therefore yeah. it didn't match my intent. And so it mm. was judged first round as crap. It's a beautiful image. Mm -hmm. So I think the moral yeah. of the story is show your work. I think so. Yeah. Be braver. Yeah. Stand by it. You don't have to say it's the best thing you ever did. All you have to be able to say is something about this I like and show it to the world. And if people don't agree, that's okay. To wrap up, I'm going to go in my notes all the way towards the end of the book where you've got two sections. One is on meaning. And I made a note here about the meaning in the making and the meaning in the message. So when I write, I never know what I'm going to call my articles or anything until after they're written. And often the name is written pretty deep into the, the piece. And so towards the end of the book, in a chapter on meaning, is a sentence that includes the meaning in the making. Let's assume that anyone who's this deep into our conversation is interested in making art and, and making meaningful art as part of having a, a meaningful life. What would you like people feel, think, or t take away once they finish your book and walk away with it? 
what do you want them to bring into their own? I'd love it if people could, especially those who feel stuck in the things that they're making, have worked out ways by the end of the book to point what they're doing at something more meaningful in terms of what they're saying with it, but also how they approach it and what it means to them personally, how they get joy out of it, how they set their expectations for the sort of feedback or quote unquote success they get from the work that they do and how long things should take and where their joy in making actually comes from. Is it from the response you get or is it from actually the act of making itself? I hope they've sort of cleared some of that stuff up for themselves. But then also I hope that they've had ideas about what they could use this thing that they do to say in the world and be more intentional about what message could I put out there? What do I care about? What have I learned through my own journey? What do I have unique access to that I could go and start using this medium of writing or photography or poetry to go and, and highlight or show the world? If, if they've got some of those things worked out for themselves, I'm very, very happy. I think I've found a perfect place for us to wind up. As part of that final section in the book, you quote, and I hope I pronounce his name correctly, Frederick Beekner, if Wiki is giving me yeah. the, uh, the pronunciation <laughs> right. And I had to go look him up. This was actually a huge takeaway for me. And he is a theologian as well as a novelist and writer. And it's the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I wouldn't have ever read that sentence if you hadn't brought that into mm. the conclusion of your work. And it got me thinking about the deep gladness of making, which in my case, my first deep gladness is in the photography and that deep hunger as I return back into photography and do crazy things like go and buy slide scanners because I found a box of old slides that Beth probably wouldn't let me throw away. So where are you seeing in your work with the channel, with the book, what deep hunger are you wanting to address? I think that one of the most specific answers I could give you to that question is anxiety. Um, I think that anxiety seems to be such a prevalent problem in Western modern culture, particularly. And I think, gosh, this is difficult to say well. So let, let me say that obviously there are people who have genuine diagnosed anxiety disorders. I'm not talking about that. And, and I know people with that issue and that's, that's separate from this. But I think a lot of anxiety outside of that, that most of us feel is unnecessary. And we do it to ourselves a lot of the time. And I think that it's not having a good handle uh, and being honest about what life is and, and realistic about the things that we're all going to go through and having perspective in terms of how, by and large, how good our lives actually are and how other people really have to struggle. When we have all those kind of things in place, I think that our anxiety levels drop. It was an exercise I used to do all the time with the youth and the students in the church was to take them out and to run soup kitchens with kids. And these are teenagers who are coming through and who have, a lot of them have like, oh, no, I really struggle with anxiety. It was amazing how anxiety evaporated when they started going and giving someone who was homeless soup. 
or helping them get an ID book so they could go and get a job in South Africa. Because they suddenly had this context and went like, I, I don't have space in my life to create anxiety to make my life feel more interesting because people are dealing with real, real issues and, and I need to actually sort myself out. Obviously the ones who had genuine anxiety disorders, they didn't, they didn't go away at all. But I think we try these things on as like personalities and we drum these things up. A lot of us do. I know I have done in my past and I didn't need to do it. I did it because I, I felt like if my life was more dramatic, it was more significant somehow. And I think that one of the big messages I've got in the book and, and on the channel in particular parts is, is can we just, can we just stop? Can we just relax? Like, let's, let's take a look at what we're actually all trying to do. Let's take a look at ourselves, get some self-awareness and work out who we really are, and then try and get positive about what we have to say about how we can take this thing that we say we love and then start to point it at people who have genuine issues in the world and start to remake some of the links that, that, that have been broken. And I promise you the anxiety that we feel around how terrible all our lives are and how awful everything difficult it is. It's never been any different. It's not, it's not actually worse. It's probably better in a lot of ways. So, so there's things that we can do in the minute we part to start to point our lives at positive things, especially with the things that we make. I think that makes our lives so much better, so much more peaceful, so much more meaningful. I would love to see more and more people get to that space because I know what it's done for me and I know I've seen what it's done for other people. And I, I think that's why that quote is so key for me. Like the place God calls you is a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger collide. That's the sweet spot for all of us. But a lot of us are so self-obsessed. I, I, remember, I remember being in seminary actually and having a friend of mine preach a, a sermon because we, you know, we obviously had to give sermons to each other, messages to each other. And this was 2001, so 20 years ago. And he said then, and it still stuck with me. And obviously like the, the majority of the sermon was quite religious in nature. It's what he had to do. But he, he stopped at one point. He says, I, I think, and it was almost like it wasn't scripted. I think that the problem we're going to have in our next generation is we're going to become obsessed with our own pain. And that really stuck with me. And I, I, I would love the underlying message I think I've got, especially at the moment, the thing I feel most passionate about is, is putting our pain and our shadows in perspective embracing them, giving them a hug, loving ourselves despite that stuff and working out how we can take the things that we love doing and pointing them at fixing other people's issues and making the world a slightly better place, bringing a bit of order to the chaos. That to me, I think not only makes the world a better place, it frees individuals when they discover that trick for themselves and their whole life reprioritizes. And that felt anxiety, suddenly, if it's not an actual disorder, at least gets put into context, but for some people it evaporates. And it's just normal felt anxiety that we all feel. We all feel a bit of anxiety. We should, otherwise we'd be dead. It's normal, but it's just normal. It's not, we don't have to obsess about it. We don't have to order our lives around it. It, it can just be something, oh, I had that emotion today, but I carried on because there's better stuff to do. There's things I can actually change in the world. And that feels, that feels like a good way to, to spend energy. Well, Sean, Thank you so much for coming on here. It's been a joy. Thanks for having me. I said before we press play, I'm hoping we have a wide ranging conversation. And uh, <laughs> and I think by any measure, we have definitely made that. So thanks for your time. Thanks for the book. And uh, thanks for that final quote that's going on my board right here. Great. You're very, very welcome. Uh, very much appreciate it.